Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. You know, Christmas is a time to look at Jesus Christ as a young babe who is Emmanuel, God with us, and suddenly planet Earth would never be the same. This morning when we look into the Gospel of Luke, we're going to take a little bit different image of Jesus Christ, not so much uh, as a young babe, but as uh, a particular figure that I think will give you some rich insight uh, into who He is and what He wants to do for our lives. During the roaring 80s, as they were called, uh, many of us, whether we are financially minded or not, became familiar uh, with a term called insider trading. Probably saw that on the nightly news or read it in the paper, those who dealt illegally in that particular practice. But it's a term that was used for buying or selling commodities, stocks, based upon having obtained inside information about a company before it was known publicly, and therefore an advantage was gained. Trader on the stock exchange with that kind of advanced uh, information or those trade secrets or those uh, lucrative tip-offs could quite frankly make a huge profit. And if you followed the 80s, you know that many did just that, unlawfully so as we know, driven by greed but determined to have what they thought would be, with this pre-released information, a significant advantage over the competition. Now I say all that because we're going to get an image of Jesus Christ a little bit that way because as we look into Luke, Jesus, in fact all the Bible really, uh, is unique insider trading. Uh, it's not unlawful, it's lawful. It's not driven by greed, as we'll find out. Instead, it's driven by love. And though it's not like its ugly counterpart in those two regards, it is similar to that counterpart that I just mentioned, in that this information is given to those who will hear it by Jesus Christ to give them a special advantage in life in making investments of their life. You know, Jesus Christ knew better than anyone else that in the future, a major trade is coming that will significantly affect everyone in this audience. When He came to earth, even in that manger, He knew that this world one day would be cashed in, bought out, merged, if you will, with eternity. And when that occurred, that would leave some in the money and others in ruin. Many times if you read through the Gospels, you'll find Jesus Christ after He's talked about the panorama of the future, after He's talking and given significant statements as to how we ought to live, urging us to live so, to give us those unique advantages, He would end those discourses with this phrase, Behold, I've told you in advance. You hear the advantage there? To anyone who would listen, behold, I've given you some unique insider information that will give you a unique one-upsmanship on everyone else. And it will allow you to invest your life wisely in order to gain significant return. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Luke chapter 10. And as you're turning there, don't think of yourself so much as turning to the gospel of Luke as much as you're calling your broker this morning, okay? Now you're dialing your broker 
and you want some insider tips on what to do with your life in the next few months. And what we're going to find there is Jesus is going to give us as our broker two very significant tips that will make an immense difference in your life and the potential of your life if you'll just listen. Now the first of these revolves around satisfaction in life. Can't think of anything that people want more than to feel satisfied with their lives. And yet, if you look across the landscape, you find that so many people are dissatisfied with their life. Jesus' advice is this. If you really want a satisfying life, and I'm kind of summarizing the passage we're going to look at, then He says, do more than just talk about it. A lot of people love to talk about what they could do and the potentials they have and the opportunities they might choose, and they live in the world of dialogue rather than action. Jesus says, if you really want a, a satisfying life, you've got to do more than just talk about it. And the illustration given for the tip is in a lawyer who approaches Jesus with a question. Look at verse 25 of chapter 10. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test, and he said, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now when you read that, there's a phrase there that immediately should grab your attention. It says that he stood up to put Jesus to the test. It implies that his question here that he's asking is insincere. And I want you to know we're in the last six months of Jesus' life and he was being accosted by all kinds of religious teachers and leaders who were trying to get Jesus to speak and debate publicly, hoping that somewhere he would slip up and then they could remove him from the popularity that he was so now enjoying. And this particular lawyer was one of those. Now, I want you to know when you read lawyer, I don't want you to think a lawyer in the sense that so many of us think, you know, the kind that if we don't win your case, you don't owe us a dime. <laughs> that's not the lawyer that's being addressed here. Uh, this lawyer is one who was a specialist an expert in the Mosaic legislation. It was his job to look into the Hebrew text to be sure that the interpretations that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were giving the people was accurate to the original text. He was, he was in a very real sense a theology professor, one who was real skilled in the Scripture. So this theology professor confronts Jesus hoping he can somehow discredit him. But I want you to know, despite his malicious intent, he asks a very good question, doesn't he? What must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question for all of us. And in asking that, he tells us some things about himself and the situation in his day. First of all, like many in his day, the thought of eternal life as, some, as something that was far off or something that occurred in the afterlife was not in their understanding. When they speak of eternal life here, and accurately so to the way eternal life is presented in the Scripture, they looked at eternal life as something that was to be possessed now in our experience that then would go on and stand up in eternity as well. That's why in verse 28 when Jesus uh, uh, commands him after this little dialogue, He says, uh, do these things and you'll go out and live. He's not talking about that you'll live in the hereafter. He's talking about if you do what this dialogue says, you'll live right now. You'll have a satisfying, meaningful life. So eternal life was not something that happens when you die. Fact is, maybe a better translation, you can jot this down, is just the word full or abundant, meaningful. 
What can I do, teacher, to have an abundant life, a full and meaningful, satisfying life? And so then Jesus speaks to that end. Now, the other thing we notice in this question is this, that despite all the knowledge that this professor, professor had, and he had vast insight into the Bible, despite all that religious understanding that he possessed, by asking this question, he tells us something about himself. That with all that Bible study, and with all that information, he still didn't have this abundant life. It was still something that he was searching for. In fact, it was very much a real question in Israel in that day as to how you step into the life of God. And that's what he wanted to know. So in essence, what he's asking is, Teacher, I'm a great religious man, and how can I make my dry religious experience come to life? You know, there are a lot of Christians who ask that same question. They've been in the faith for years, and the initial honeymoon is over and the glow of that. And they're asking the same question. I'm tired of just going through the motions, or I've got all the information I could ever need, but my life, it's become dissatisfactory to me dry and dusty. And so what do I do now? What can I do to spike it, make it different, give some life to it? Good question. What can I do to inherit an abundant life? And so Jesus gives the answer with a question. He says in verse 26, well, what is written in the law? You're the expert. How does it read to you? And this guy answers from the law, Deuteronomy Chapter 6 is where he's quoting. He says, well, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, correct. Right. He scored an A on another exam. Teacher, now, he says, do this and you will live. Now, he's not saying to the guy, you go back and live out the rules of the law. I want you to see that because this guy was skilled in the rules of the law. You're not going to be saved by the law. You're not going to get an abundant life with rule keeping. He's not saying that, but he does point him back into the law. And as the guy goes in the law, guess what he finds? In Deuteronomy 6, not a rule. You know what he finds there? A statement about what? Look at it. Love relationships. <laughs> and find the law. He finds in, in the very law itself, he finds love relationships between a man and his God and a man and his neighbor. You want to live? Love. That's how you can live. Love people. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I would expect if this guy was really sincere, he would immediately have kind of been, been hurt by that comment because he would realize the barrenness of his own life. And he says, well, teacher, how do I do that? How do I love God like that? Wouldn't you like to know that? How do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? How do you love your neighbor as yourself? Well, that was if he was sincere. He asked a different question. But if he would have asked that question, Jesus would have answered it this way. He would have told him that eternal life begins when you begin to understand that God loves you more than you love yourself. That's what Christmas is all about, by the way. That God loves you more than you love yourself. And only then, when you really understand that, not with your mind, but with your heart as well, only then can you begin to trust God with the contents of your life. You see, this guy believed in God. Nobody would accuse him for not believing 
in God. Just like no one would accuse most Christians who profess faith in Christ of not believing in God. But listen, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a satisfactory life. And though he believed in God, evidently, he had not come to the place where he trusted God's love enough that he could entrust God with the contents of his life to lead him and direct him. You see, belief and faith that God loves me more than I love me is the key to the life this guy sought. It's a very simple concept. And people try everything else and miss it, but it is so profound. It works like this. If I believe that, that God loves me more than I love me, it will cause me to want to move towards God. That's the initial step. And as I move towards God, knowing that He loves me more than I love me, I begin to ask Him help in my family, in my finances, my personal life, in the things I'm facing. I want to know that because love casts out fear. I don't think God's going to make me do anything that's going to hurt me because He loves me more than I love me, and love always brings care and concern and compassion. So I move to Him, and I give Him the contents of my life, and I let Him help me make decisions, and I obey, knowing He loves me more than I love me. And as I let Him do that, and as I experience that, as I give Him that control, what I experience back is that He delivers. He begins to make a difference in my life. Things begin to change, and I begin to see God really does care about me in much more than a theoretical construct, but in a real, everyday life. And when that happens, you know what happens to my heart and my soul and my mind? It begins to not just think about the love of God in an abstract faith. It begins to think it with an emotional fervency. All of a sudden, I want to love God more because I realize how much He really loves me. But it all starts on that very simple first point, that to come to God for an abundant life, I've got to believe that He loves me more than I love myself. It's foundational. May I suggest that this religious lawyer was not at this kind of faith place in his life. And so he was setting rules up and regulations. That's why he begins his discourse, what must I do? He didn't think of love. He was thinking of another task, another rule, another hoop to jump through, and somehow then God reward him because he never understood the love of God. He never mastered it. God's telling him all through the Old Testament, I love you, but he's still trying to earn God's love. And, and, and as long as you're doing that, there's a fear factor. You're running around carefully. I hope I do this right so you'll love me. That's totally antithetical to the Christian faith. And besides that, when you set up all those rules and regulations and try to jump through them, you fail, don't you? And when you fail, in order to not feel condemned, you have to play games with yourself. You have to deny what's really going on. You have to deny the reality of your life. You have to hide the facts. Or in this case, you have to justify yourself. And that's what he does. Notice the question. But wishing, verse 29, to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? An old debating tactic, if you've ever debated. When they get you to the point where you're in the corner and you have no way out and they're pressing the application right into your heart, simply ask them to define the terms. <laughs> That's what we did, by the way, when we went through the last election, when this whole issue of family values came out and people were starting to say, that's wrong and that's right, and the heat got pretty hot. And so immediately when it got to a certain level, you know what people started doing? They started saying, let's define the terms. What is a family? So we got lost in all the definitions 
and never got to any applications. That's a great tactic to use. And that's what he uses here. Who is my neighbor? Now listen carefully to Jesus' answer because it's a trick answer to this guy. And I want to see if you can find it as I read it. It's a story. Maybe it was a real story. We don't know. But he gives him a story to answer his question in part, not in whole. He says, And a certain man was going down from Jericho. It's the famous story of the Good Samaritan. From Jerusalem to Jericho, and I've been on that road, and it's long, it's straight downhill, barren, twisting with caves and rocks, and there's nothing out there, and it's called for centuries the bloody road because there were so many attacks and terrorist attacks on caravan. So this man goes down this road, and he fell among robbers, and they stripped him, and they beat him, and they went off leaving him half dead. And by chance, a certain priest was going down on that road. He was very religious, as we know, worked in the temple. And he saw this man, and I'm sure he probably wondered, this could be a setup. <laughs> Have you ever seen somebody out there asking for help? And you go, I don't know. You know, guy in the alley saying, can you help me? And you think, I don't know about that. I go in there, get me. So he saw that, and he thought, they may get me. So he moves to the other side of the road. And then a little later on, another very esteemed Jew, a Levite, who worked in the temple and was commanded by God in, in Numbers 8, because they were the tribe of Levi, to hold up the purity and the integrity of the law. He comes along, he sees this man, and he passes by as well on the other side of the road. But verse 33, a certain Samaritan, and as soon as Jesus said that word, I'm sure the lawyer went, because <gasps> he couldn't stand Samaritans. See, Samaritans were half-breeds. They were the ones in 700 B.C. when the Assyrians conquered Israel, the ones that remained intermarried with the pagans and formed a half-breed race called the Samaritans. And they were always at odds because the Jewish community would never let them into fellowship, and so they got to be enemies. So much so that a good Jew, when he was going to Galilee by way of Jerusalem, even though Samaria was right in the path, would instead walk around the whole country so as not to get Samaritan dust on his sandals. Like going to Memphis, and in between Memphis and Little Rock is Samaria, so we go down to Jackson, Mississippi, and then drive over to Nashville, and then come back to Memphis. That's what they would do. Couldn't stand Samaritans. But here's this Samaritan, and he comes along, and notice what happens. He sees this guy, and what happens? He feels compassion. He came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, and he poured oil and wine on them. And he put him on his own beast, and he brought him to an end and took care of him. And on the next day, he took out two denarii, that's two days' wages, gave, him, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend when I return, I will repay you. And then he says to this lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? Now, do you see how he changed the answer to the question? <laughs> see, this guy asked, who is my neighbor? And Jesus answers the question, who is a neighbor? Not who is my neighbor, but who is a neighbor? Are you a neighbor? That's the point. That's how you get the answer. And he asked it, which one proved to be so? Now we get a little insight into how proud this lawyer was when he answers it. Look in verse 37, and he said to him, the one. He can't even bring himself to say, well, the Samaritan. No, he has to answer it in kind of a neutral term to disinfect it. You know, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says, that's right. 
go and do likewise. So here again, in verse 37, this guy scores an A on his exam. Answered the first question right? Answered the second question right? He's a real student. He would do great in Bible study fellowship, wouldn't he? Man, this guy's an A+. He'd do great in a seminar. He'd do great anywhere. He gets all the answers correct. But now let me ask you this. When Jesus commanded him in verse 37, in verse 28, to go and do what He said, how many of you think He went and did it? Anybody? No, He didn't do it. He was all talk. He had a dissatisfied religious life. But he was all talk. He was all theory. He was all Bible study. He was all orthodoxy. He had all the answers, but he had no love and he had no life. And he knew it. You know, if I can be honest for just a moment, th this passage convicts me. It really does. I, I want to fall down and say, God, would you get the lawyer out of me? You know, the one in there who, who spends all his time thinking about all these things and what's right theoretically? Would you get that out of there? Because the last thing I want is to have a well-worn Bible and an unacceptable life. I want to be somebody who can flex in love. I never will forget, I had a ex Samaritan experience once. Maybe you've had that. But I remember I was in Texas with two other guys and we were passing through there and we stopped late at night about 11 o'clock at the Dobbs House restaurant, this breakfast place. Went in and sat down and there was no one there and we had breakfast. And uh, about midnight when we were about to leave, uh, people had been filling in after 11 and, and the thing had become quite full. And at 11 or 12 o'clock when the waitress came to give us her check, tears were streaming down her face. And... Uh, so I asked her, I said, hey, what, what's the problem? She said, well, she said, gosh, I don't know what I'm going to do. She said, I can't get the owner. His phone doesn't, he's not answering his phone. The, the short order cook didn't show up for his late night shift. Waitress didn't come. And here I am, and all these people are angry at me, demanding stuff, and I don't know what to do. And so we said, be warmed and be filled. No. <laughs> My friend, which was the lover in the group, said, you know, I was a short order cook in college. And he said, what do you think? And I said, well, I can, I can take orders, I guess. So we asked her, and she said, you're kidding. She said, you wouldn't do that. I said, well, let us give a chance, and maybe the owner will come by or whatever. So he hopped back there in the kitchen, started frying up eggs and bacon. And I was out there taking orders. We only had one problem when I delivered some eggs with a bug in it. But other than that, <laughs> the night went great. And here it was now, 4.30 in the morning, and I was over there cleaning the place out. And this lady was sitting there. Do you think we had an opportunity to share Jesus Christ with her at that moment? It was unbelievable. That's the kind of person I'd like to be. Somebody who's not so tied up in himself and finishing another rule, another task, that he forgets to love. Don't let me become like the character Wilbur Reese describes when with biting sarcasm he wrote, I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my sleep, but just enough to equal for me a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to love a black man or to pick beets with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. 
I want the warmth of the womb, not a new birth. I want about a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. Just give me $3 worth of God, please. For those of us who really want a satisfying life, one that this guy was asking for, full and meaningful, here's Jesus' insider tip. Don't just talk about it. Love well. Love well. And I say well because we can all love, but loving well is different than loving. Loving well goes beyond the natural side of things. Loving well means loving to the point that I risk it all in God's hands to love me because I believe that He loves me more than I love myself. Loving well means loving others even when it's uncomfortable. Not comfortable. Real love is always uncomfortable. I hear people tell me, you know, when we talk about things that they can do with their life, they're dissatisfied, they're 45, they're making all that they need to make, and they say, I just don't feel like I'm doing the things I need to do. Well, what would you like to do? Well, I don't know. So we start talking about it and make recommendations. Ah, I couldn't do that. No, I couldn't do that. They can do any of it. But you know what they're looking for? Comfort. And love is never comfortable. Is the love in your marriage comfortable? Is the love with your kids comfortable or is it hard? Does it stretch you? Does it push you way beyond limits? You'd never want to go other than the love relationship. Real love is always uncomfortable. And let me tell you, to have a ministry, to find fulfillment in your life, you're going to have to become uncomfortable. You're going to have to go beyond yourself. Put yourself in places you'd never imagine and stretch yourself way out and it will stay uncomfortable. But stretch yourself. Go beyond yourself. Because in doing that, you know what you discover? You discover a satisfying life. Not a vain, empty one. That's Jesus' tip for next year. Everyone also wants peace. I mean, this is the season of peace, the Prince of Peace, and you'll hear hymns and songs and Christmas carols about peace. Jesus has a second tip in the verses that follow. He says, if you want inner peace, then you're going to have to do more than just stay busy. And the illustration he gives is of a housewife. And some of you ladies can probably identify with this. Look at verse 38. It says, Now as Jesus was traveling along, He entered a certain village, and a woman named Martha welcomed Him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who moreover was listening to the Lord's Word seated at His feet. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to Jesus and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. Well, what's the root of Martha's problem here? I mean, she obviously doesn't have peace, does she? And what's the root of her problem? Well, let me, let me describe it this way. She's, she's done a very admirable thing. She's invited Jesus, this revolutionary, into her house. She has the gift of hospitality. She's extended it to Him. But even as she invites him into her house, she keeps, and here's the key word now, she keeps her agenda. Not Jesus' agenda, her agenda. Look at verse 40. In verse 40, when she makes this request, she calls him Lord. But by the command she gives Jesus, you wonder, wait a minute, who wears the crown here? You know? I mean, it kind of sounds a little awkward. Lord, tell her to get in here. You know? That just kind of doesn't sound right, does it? 
But you know, Martha is a beautiful picture of us, of ourselves, who at some point in your pilgrimage came to a life-changing encounter with Jesus Christ and you invited Him into your life, not into your house. It's an admirable thing to do. You invited Him into your life. But then you ask Him to work your agenda and there's no peace in your home. You're saying, Lord, get me out of this financial bind. Lord, find me a new job. You know, it's all that kind of stuff. And it doesn't work. And it didn't work for Martha either, does it? I mean, it'd be great if it did work. Wouldn't you love Jesus to respond like that? Okay, Martha, get up and go in there. But He doesn't work that way. What He does here, as Martha discovered, was begin to speak to the core problem. In this case, for her, how to find peace. Look at verse 41. The Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha. <laughs> Hear the love there? God loves us. Martha, Martha. <laughs> you are worried and bothered about so many things. But only a few things are necessary. In fact, really only one in Mary. She's chosen the good part. Now, can you think, by the way, of a better verse for the Christmas season than the two I just read, ladies? Huh? Really? Doesn't it just kind of go, ah, well, that feels good. Yeah, there's just so many things. And you want to do away with those. Two weeks before Christmas, it seems like there's a million things to do. The word bothered there is the word in Greek that we get our English word turbulence. There's all this turbulence inside of you, Martha. And I want you to know it's self-inflicted frenzy. Nobody's brought it on you. You've brought it on yourself. And the real problem, Martha, and I want you to listen to me, Martha, the real problem is everything looks important to you, but it's not. All the things in your life and in my life, they're not all important. They don't operate on the same plane. Only a few things are necessary. That's why if you'll notice in your church bulletin, long ago we tried to break up church activities between essential ministries and elective ministries. Essential being what as the leadership of the church we're saying, what are the basics things we want everyone in the church to be sure they do because they're real important to the overall family life here. And there's a lot of elective things you can do, but if people are doing elective things and you're not and you don't have time to do it, don't wear yourself out trying to go to all those things. Do the essential things. And if life gets real hectic for you and you are doing some of the electives and you're sitting there saying, what do I do? Let go of the electives and fall back into the essential. See, it's a real wise thing to do. When Jesus says, only a few things are necessary, that Greek word means this, only a few things are essential. Really needed. In fact, only one when you get to the very core and that's going to be a relationship with me. But only a few things are really essential. Now let me ask you because it begs the question here, do you know what the essential things are for your life? I mean, if I were to sit down with you and it was just you and me and we were sitting around, I said, well, Mary or Bill, tell me, if, if, if it's your day of death and you want on your tombstone what you felt like really counted what are the five things you would put on there? What would you put there? The things that you don't want to let go of no matter what, no matter if nothing else gets done, what are the three, four, five things you would be sure you're going to get done? That has a way of blowing away so many things just doing that. But see, so often those five things get locked into 50 and they're all a blur 
And so loving my kids and playing golf become equal. But they're not equal because everything isn't important. Only a few things are. And you've got to determine what those are and that myriad of things bombarding your life. Otherwise, you will not be able to make right choices in the day-to-day -day or assign right values to the things invading your life. Without a clear vision, everything looks important. Everything demands your time. Irma Bombeck has some reasons why keeping things in focus is important. She said this, If I had to live my life over again, I would have waxed less and listened more. Instead of wishing away nine months of pregnancy and complaining about the shadows over my feet, I would have cherished every minute of it and realized that the wonderment growing inside me was to be my only chance in assisting God in a real miracle. I would have invited friends over to dinner even if the carpet was stained and even if the sofa was faded. I would have eaten popcorn in the good living room and I would have worried a lot less about the dirt you could see around when you lit the fireplace. I would have taken time to listen to my grandfather ramble about his youth. I would have burnt those pink candles sculptured like a rose before it melted in the storage room trying to protect them. I would have sat cross-legged on the lawn with my children and I would have never worried about grass stains. I would have cried and laughed less while watching television and cried and laughed more while watching real life. I would have shared more of the responsibility carried by my husband. I would have eaten less cottage cheese and more ice cream. I would have never bought anything just because it was practical. And when my child kissed me impetuously, I would never have said, Later now, go get washed up for dinner. I would have done a lot of things differently. How do you know how to make good choices in the midst of a frenzy? The only way you know is when you have identified for yourself clearly those things for your life that are essential. The necessary things with everything else elective. You're not going to miss anything if you miss out on traveling on that fishing trip or taking that vacation or going to Disney World. There is an eternity that's far grander than any of those things. You won't miss out if you gave that out up to love somebody well. Let me give you maybe a good application. Try this afternoon writing down the things that you think are essential for your life. Don't let them get over five or six. Keep them within that. And if you're a couple, you might write down those things individually and then share them with one another and see if they match. Maybe that's part of the turbulence in your life is you've got different essentials. But always, when you look at the things that you say are essential in your life, be wise and then look at the Scripture and see if the Scripture affirms your choices as really being necessary. It's a great, great project. Everything looks important, but it's not. That's why in Ephesians 5 it says, Be careful how you live, not as the unwise, but as the wise, making the most of your time because these days are evil. I'd say these days are filled. And he, then he goes on and he says, And do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God really is. Do you know what the essential things in your life are? So here's Jesus' insider tip. Remember he said, if you really want to have a satisfying life, love 
well. Keep it around love. And at the end of your life, you will have no regrets. Here he says, if you really want to have peace in your life, if you really want that, let's say even for this Christmas season, if you want that, then do more than stay busy. Here's the words. Choose wisely and let everything else go. You know, I have found as consultants have documented that people who focus on the essential things tend to get everything else done. It's kind of a funny deal. But people who focus on everything only feel guilty. Jesus wants to give you an advantage. He really does. He wants to give you some tips for the holidays and beyond. He wants you to have a satisfying life. And He wants you to have peace. Let's pray together. Lord, as we conclude this morning, it is my prayer for me and for every man and woman here that we will not come to January and say to ourselves, I wish I'd have had Bob and Jane over. I wish I'd have called Grandma and talked to her. I wish our kids could have sat around and had a real Advent I wish we could have had a time to play together and love one another. I wish we could have had something that was relaxed. But I'm exhausted here in January. And I look back and there's been a lot of things, but it doesn't mean anything to me at all. Lord, save us from that. I pray in, in our minds that we would sit down today and use those minds to say, what do we want to accomplish this month, that at the end of this month, we would look back and say, we had a real Christmas. We chose the necessary things. And thank you, Lord, for helping us do that, for giving us that advantage. That's the way it should be for all of life, Father, and we thank you that you have given us these tips. Now give us ears to hear and hearts to obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.